0: Everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another week of true crime and nursing and healthcare. A little bit of everything that we throw in here. This week, I have old friend of the podcast and also very important member of the Good Nurse Bad Nurse team, the entire IT department, Mark, my husband, <laughs> back on the show. Hey,
1: Mark. Hello, hello, glad to be here.
0: So usually my Guest host is somewhere out there in the internet universe, and we're talking over video, but this time you're right here in the studio with me. It's kind of weird, but we've got a pretty good show planned. I'm excited. I wanted to have you back on because we're getting closer to the Nurse Creator Con, and you're going with me to Austin.
1: already been once.
0: Yeah, we went down there to look at the venue, which I'm really excited about. This the art gallery where this event is going to take place. place. Oh yeah, very neat place. It's going to be a cool event. We're super excited about it. So for those of you that that don't know, Nurse Creator Con is going to be September the twenty fourth, and it'll be from one o'clock in the afternoon until seven o'clock in the evening. It's going to be a kind of an opportunity to just network and meet each other. Nurses who do all kinds of creating, whether it's podcasting, people on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, people who've created businesses like Mike with Simple Nursing, uh, Dr. Kiana Jones, who is an aesthetic nurse, APR and Beauty, who uh, has written all sorts of eBooks. She's going to ha- share her knowledge and wisdom about that. Nurse Jessica Seitz is going to be hosting and bringing her funny spirit to the whole thing, but also she's going to share all that she's learned about being on Facebook and how she's literally been able to turn that into a job with basically making a lot more money than she was making as a nurse at the bedside, which I think is crazy.
1: I know, that's so crazy.
0: (laughs) The nurse Erica, love her so much. She's been on the podcast many times. She's going to be there as well. And many, many more. We've got legalnurse.com who is actually helping to sponsor This event, they're sending one of their legal nurse consultants there to help explain to everybody how to get involved in legal nurse consulting. I'm excited to get to learn about that. I feel like that's really fascinating. And also we want to remember to thank CBD Stat, who they sponsor our podcast, but they're also helping to sponsor this event. And Echo, who also sponsors our podcast, they are helping to sponsor the event. So lots of companies that are so supportive of healthcare professionals and nurses in particular are helping to Give us this opportunity to go down there, network with each other. If you can't be there in person, we do have a virtual option. So go on to nursecreatorcon.com, the website that Mark set up for us, (laughs) and click on the link there to go check out the tickets, and you'll see that there's a virtual option. If for some reason you're not able to be there in person, we would love for you to be there. We'll have have it live streamed and record the whole thing and have that available for up to a year to be able to go back and watch the different videos.
1: But Austin is a really cool place if you've never been.
0: It is. It really is. I'd never been.
1: Now, it was super hot, but maybe it'll cool down in September.
0: Yeah. I've, it, I've been talking to the locals. It's definitely going to be a lot cooler September 24th than it was when we went in July. <laughs> <laughs> Are you thinking about going back to school to get a master's degree, maybe a family nurse practitioner degree? Well, it's so important to choose the right program. Samuel Merritt University's MSN FNP program has a 100% employment rate after six months. Unbelievable. And Samuel Merritt University has been kind enough to continue to sponsor our podcast and they want us to let you know they're continuing to offer a $10,000 scholarship to anyone enrolled in their MSN, DNP or family nurse practitioner programs. If you're interested in getting more information about about these programs, you can visit them at smumsn.com. That's smumsn.com. And of course, we'll put that link on our website if you want to just go to goodnursbadnurs.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash goodnurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and you can also see what they pay the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to TrustedHealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there, and fill out a profile today. So I guess we can get started with this bad doctor story. This I do have to give a trigger warning. I feel like I've been having to do a lot of these lately, but I'd like to just let people know there's some sensitive content in this one, some sexual assault And I just like to let people know that in case that's something that bothers you might want to set this one out or just skip to the good doctor portion, which is going to be, it's a great story that we have for that portion of the show. So this is about Ricardo Cruciani. Ricardo Cruciani was a neurologist in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. He got his medical degree at the University of Buenos Aires in Argentina And he was at one time a prominent doctor. He served as chairman of the neurology department, professor of neurology at Drexel University, and the director for the Center for Pain and Palliative Medicine at Drexel University. So in his patient practice, he was often the last ditch hope for people suffering from terrible brain disorders. We're getting to a a point where the physicians and specialists are few and far between. Sometimes you have to wait months and six months just to be able to get in to see a physician, especially a specialist like this. So it's really sad. We know what we're about to talk about, that we would lose someone who obviously was so talented.
1: Yeah. And yeah. And that last ditch hope turns out to be a crucial element to the story.
0: Mm. That's true. And it makes it even, you know, more sad to to yeah. think about that. Yeah. Well, in 2017, when he was 63 years old, he was fired from his position, and he admitted to taking advantage of some of his most vulnerable patients who were actually made more vulnerable by him due to him prescribing high doses of pain medications in order to have them develop a dependency. Prosecutors accused Krushiani of fondling and groping women under his care, including trying to forcibly kiss a woman in his office. They said that he tried to force a woman to touch his penis, and that he even pleasured himself in front of a patient. Three of his victims showed up in court later that year to give victim impact statements. One woman said, what you did took a part of my soul, and you took it to a dark spot. I no longer trust anyone. And that's the thing about abuse like this. It doesn't just hurt the person at the moment that the abuse is happening. It is ongoing. It's something that, even with therapy, You know, you definitely learn to live with it, but it's it it definitely it creates almost a new normal for the victim.
1: Yeah. You know, there's so many things already wrong with this story. Just the fact that he was a prominent doctor. He has no doubt helped countless numbers of people with pain. And I have to believe that he at some point did this for the right reasons to even get into the field. And the other thing is his age. It's just so hard to grasp that. I'm 53. He was 63. It's just so hard to grasp getting to that part of your life, and this becomes who you are. Just unbelievable.
0: The judge in this case told him, you've sentenced your victims to a life of pain. So, having you know said that, you know we've heard from the victims. We heard that you know the, from the judge, who clearly understands that he is he has caused his victims to suffer for the rest of their lives. So, how much jail time do you think a man like this would? I
1: would have to think years, maybe decades.
0: I I would think so too. Just from what we've heard from understanding who he was where he came from the type of trust the vulnerability
1: of the yeah. of the patients yeah. yeah
0: the vulnerability the type of trust that would have been placed in his for in his hands you know for people to look at him in his position and 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 complete have complete trust in him I mean, you know they would,
1: did. you know this would be like children or elderly I mean they're the most vulnerable uh, among us and, right and this group was as vulnerable,
0: right. It's just absolutely appalling. So I would certainly expect at least years. He didn't get any jail time.
1: I just can't believe it.
0: It's just it's disgusting. it's it scares me to think that this is our criminal justice system. This is how it's set up. It's so disrespectful, so disrespectful of the victims and of the profession. Think about what this has done to the profession anytime someone in a position like him does something like this. So he, he did plead guilty to seven different counts against him, including indecent assault and whatever that means for that particular state. That's what they call it. He took a plea deal. So in exchange for his plea, he was sentenced to seven years of probation. And I understand that I mean, whenever we talk about these these cases and we talk about the sentencing and I get so outraged over um what seems like an inadequate amount of time that somebody would spend in prison for, you know, versus what they did. That the prosecution, a lot of times, they'll say it may seem like nothing, but the alternative would be that he would go to, tr- they would go to trial, and a jury would say there's really not enough evidence to convict him, and then he ends up l- getting off completely, and maybe even keeping his medical license if he's found not guilty. I guess I understand it from that point of view. If they were looking at this like, well, this is the best we can do. He's going to admit that he did it. and
1: It's hard to believe that seven different counts, they didn't feel they had adequate evidence to take it to trial.
0: Well, that apparently happened on a Tuesday. And by that Wednesday, he was jet-setting to Buenos Aires to attend his daughter's wedding.
1: I would not want him at my wedding.
0: (laughs) I mean... (laughs) What I don't understand is he just got seven years of probation and he can literally get on a plane and not only leave the state, but leave the country. Yeah. Wouldn't you expect- Does It doesn't sound like
1: any probation I've heard of.
0: I know. I Usually people have to get special permission to leave, even cross state lines, if they're on probation. So how in the world the next day yeah, he's able to get It sounds like
1: some local back scratching-
0: Mm-hmm. So by 2021, investigators were able to bring stronger charges against him. Thank goodness these investigators were working hard. They knew that it wasn't enough for him to just get probation. They got what they could, could get, but they didn't stop there. They kept looking, kept investigating, and were finally able to bring stronger charges against him. Predatory sexual assault, attempted rape, sexual abuse, two counts of rape, and seven counts of criminal sexual acts. So what they said is that he used his background in psychiatry to ask his patients questions about private matters, like their childhoods and marriages. Eventually, they would, he would develop a personal relationship with them, and he would do things like stroke their hair, compliment their appearance, give them hugs until it progressed to him forcibly kissing and groping the women and then compelling them to have sex with him.
1: I just can't imagine how a doctor can even perform these types of acts in an office setting. Like, where is everyone? Mm -hmm. Where's the family members? Where's the staff? I just don't understand this. He had to have set this all up, you know, to have some privacy.
0: Yes, and there are some articles that say there were victims who would— Request to not have to go into a room by themselves with him. And so, but the people that work there didn't order that. They would just say, Oh, I can't do that. And they would leave him alone. See, it's
1: just hard to believe that there wasn't some enabling going mm-hmm. on. You know, I, I, we have a dentist, or we had a dentist who I've seen this many times through the years where he will not go into a room with a lady present that he doesn't bring staff with him. Mm. That's just his policy. And, you know, that should be across the board. This kind of thing should not happen. Right.
0: Yeah. I completely agree. I think that sometimes people who, especially men who hold a position like he held of authority, of this prominent position that's highly respected, can. Intimidate or just manipulate or just use that against not only his victims but also the staff around him to set up the situation to where no one is going to disturb him. Whatever he has to say for it to be understood that if he's in the room with a patient, the door is not to be opened. Right. You know, he's not to be disturbed. The case. Yeah, it really does, and I it makes you wonder. You know, did the working in the office suspect something? Did they? suspect it, but think that it was somehow consensual. Because here's the thing. It can't really be consensual if you have a doctor, if you have someone in that position. That's not consensual. I don't care if the person is an adult. If you have a person in, in a position where you're caring for another person, like in that relationship, that is that person is considered a vulnerable adult. And you're put in a position such that you have power over them, and it's understood. You know it. Uh, he knew it as a physician. He knew he had power over these people. And so it wouldn't matter if the patients were consenting, if they knew what he wanted them to do, and if they even deliberately went in there with that understanding that all they had to do was perform a sex act to, in order to get drugs, it still. Not appropriate. They cannot consent, because in, no matter how you look at it, he is still in that position of power over them. He has the power to give them what they want or what they need. Yeah. in order to satisfy their addiction, you know, their dependency.
1: Yeah.
0: And in many cases, he, de- he created that dependency himself.
1: Right. He took it to a whole other level of depravity by creating a dependency.
0: Well, in many cases, these patients would try to seek outside medical care. So they obviously become uncomfortable with the situation and they don't want to be in this situation, but they need that medicine. They have a dependency on this medication. And so they try to go see another physician, another provider, another neurologist. And these other providers are going, I, we, I cannot prescribe these high doses of medications.
1: Right. And it makes me wonder, how did he even get the medicine? Mm -hmm. You know, there had to be some type of collusion to be able to over-prescribe medications.
0: Are you saying, like, how did they get them filled?
1: Yeah. Yeah. A pharmacist would, in all good conscience.
0: Mm -hmm. I. Uh, that's a, probably a gray area there, too. I know that there have been pharmacists who've gotten in trouble and been arrested for filling prescriptions that were in situations like this or in situations where maybe someone overdosed or, you know, and it was considered an inappropriately high amount of medication. I don't know.
1: Maybe his ceiling was a lot higher given who he was. Maybe. You know, palliative. Right. Care.
0: Yeah. It's, I'd say that probably was true. The case, and I mean, think about this too. I mean, he could have very well planned this whole sick thing from at some point because he, you know, was in one type of medicine and then went into this pain and palliative. So
1: he stockpiled it.
0: Did he or no? Well, he's not actually physically giving them this medicine. He's giving the prescriptions that they're going to get. So, but. But did he deliberately at one point say, wow, if I go into pain and palli- palliative, I would be able to prescribe yeah, very high back doses? How does
1: this go with, mm-hmm. with this guy?
0: Yeah. Yeah. From 2002, I would say at that point, they're probably, the government probably wasn't coming down quite as hard on the pain medications, the opioids like they are now. And I'm sure he probably went, oh, I, if I go into this type of medication, I could really create a dependency in these patients and do whatever I want to. To them, I mean, I, it could have been that premeditated. So here they go, you know, going to other doctors to try to get treated from someone else, and they weren't able to get help from them. Because the other doctors, the other providers would say, I cannot do this. Like, I'm not able to give you the same amount of medicine that this other doctor is giving you. Not only are they left with this addiction to the opioid, but they also are left with sexual trauma and uh, that
1: they realize they're stuck with it's forever. Something they're gonna have to live
0: with well, yeah, and they probably feel so just desperate. And the thing is that you have these victims that came forward, but how many countless others were there, probably, you know, right? In existence that never came forward, as we know, a lot of victims of sexual abuse don't come forward mm-hmm. because they're embarrassed, they're ashamed, they just or they just don't want to deal with it. It's like their way of coping is to just be, you know, kind of galvanize themselves and move forward and just say, "I'm I can't go back and relive that. I don't." So this, this
1: even sounds like it could push someone to suicide.
0: I totally, sadly, it definitely sounds like something that could, if somebody w- was inclined, you know, could see that pushing them in that direction. Mm-hmm. There was one victim who said at one point she was prescribed over 1,300 pills a month.
1: Wow. Do, do the math on that. That's like two pills, almost two pills an hour. Wow. For every day.
0: Wow. Wow. CBD Stat. They're amazing products. Love them. They support our podcast. Their CBD product is some of the absolute purest CBD out there. And some of my friends use it for headaches. I personally use it for foot pain. It helps with some people with their back pain. It's truly an amazing product. And they are so good to healthcare professionals. Such a good company. You know, I was able to use their product for the first time after you and I returned from Washington, D.C. for the Nurses March. They provided me with some samples And I used it on a sore knee and then later on a sore wrist. And it helped so much. My daughter even uses it on her back for her scoliosis. And it really does help. That's amazing. And of course, their products are 100% THC free, which is great for travel nurses who have to take a drug test every three months. They only offer very strong CBD greater than 1000 milligrams. If you're interested, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. That's cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse, in there. So they'll know that we sent you there. There was another victim that said that she actually went to a psychologist and told her psychologist about the assault that happened to her from this doctor, but the psychologist allegedly didn't report it. He didn't report this, what, you know, what happened. And I would think that they would have an obligation to do that, you know, to report something like that.
1: Yeah, you would think.
0: Yeah, I mean, you would think so, because even if the patient who is telling the psychologist about what happened, even if they don't want them to, you would think, well, I have to tell someone because he could be victimizing someone else. Sure. That's so disturbing. So this all went on over the course of 15 years, between 2002 and 2017. He sexually abused numerous adult female patients who suffered from severe and chronic pain and were under his medical care as a pain management doctor. He exploited and leveraged his position of trust as a healthcare provider and took advantage of these very vulnerable people suffering from significant pain and used his ability to prescribe medicine, to withhold medicine, and he would do that.
1: You know, withholding the pain medicine, mm-hmm. withholding the opioids, unbelievable.
0: Right. He if they did not perform the sex acts that he was requiring them to perform, he would say, that I'm not going to prescribe them your medicine." And they obviously, they're, they have this chemical dependency and this addiction. They can't. And chemical chemical dependency and addiction are two different things. I, I want to make that distinction. But if he is it, Either way, you someone dealing with a chemical dependency or someone dealing with addiction or both. It's very powerful, very very powerful. And your body, you know, and your brain is going to be saying, "No, I have to have that chemical."
1: Yeah, and mixed with pain.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Just wanting relief. Yeah. So, the federal government was actually able to get involved in this investigation because they said he enticed and induced his victims to travel across. State lines for the purpose of subjecting them to unlawful sexual abuse.
1: I have to think that taking it to the federal level was how they were able to get past all the local influences that he had.
0: I bet that's probably what did it, you know, having that outside, the, that federal. They don't care who you are. Right, exactly. So the abusive sexual conduct included, among other things, forcible kissing, touching victims' breasts and genitals, oral sex acts, vaginal sexual intercourse, and attempted anal sexual intercourse. He was convicted of one count of predatory sexual assault, one count of attempted rape, one count of sexual abuse, two counts of rape, and seven counts of criminal sexual acts. A New York City jury reached the verdict after deliberating for about three days. They found him guilty, and he will be sentenced on September 14th in 2022.
1: Well, wow. takes a long time to get through at least the sentencing process. It's
0: it yeah it does hard to
1: understand that. I mean, when with Redonda, you know, we didn't wait months.
0: Yeah, that's true. We did have to wait a couple. of, Well, yeah, it, we did have to wait a couple of months actually. Oh, did we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she heard the verdict came down. I think in March, and she the actual yeah it was take like two months. Hmm.
1: Well, you know, they have those victim impacts. Yes. That have process. Maybe that does make sense. Yeah.
0: And just scheduling everything, you know. But the whole system does, it is, you know, I love to listen to the prosecutors podcast. And I've learned so much from them about the criminal justice system. It's just fascinating when you hear them take these true crime stories and break them down from a prosecutor's point of view. Because they'll tell you things like one of the things that... Alice, it says, the, it's Brett and Alice, the prosecutor. So one thing that Alice says is that the criminal justice system is designed to move slowly. It's not designed to move swiftly, even though you, we are guaranteed as part of our constitutional right, the right to a speedy trial. And yet the process is set up to where things don't move very quickly because you want things to kind of move slowly, I guess, in, in that world. Um and it makes sense depends when she depends on which
1: side you're on. It
0: it makes sense the way she explained it because for us as kind of lay people that don't really, you know, we're not in that world. For us it seems like, hey, you look at the evidence, the guy's guilty, bring the hammer down, lock him away, throw away the key, you know, like that's right, how we right. think. But for the criminal justice system, I guess the way they look at it is these things need to take time in order to make sure that everything is done accurately, that the truth actually comes out and that it's done, everything's done correctly.
1: Yeah, and I guess it's there's some fear there of making some type of technical error in, mm-hmm. in the processing that's going to give him some leverage to appeal.
0: Well, that's true, too.
1: Yeah.
0: I don't know about you, but... I have to have coffee every morning before I go to work. And lately, I found myself needing more and more coffee just to get that awake and alert feeling. Well, I got this email from a company called Magic Mind, and they sent me this little elixir that I drink every morning in addition to my coffee, because I ain't giving that up. And it has this ingredient in it called L-theanine that helps the caffeine in my coffee to last longer and to be more effective for me. So I kind of look at it as the opposite of taking melatonin on the nights before I have to work that sort of helps shut my mind down. So this has ingredients to help wake my mind up and just help me you know, be able to focus more and be more alert at work. So of course, this is in no way giving any medical advice or guaranteeing that it's going to work for you in the same way it works for me. But I, I mean, I found it to be beneficial and hey, you might too. Just go to www.magicmind.co forward slash nurse and enter the promo code nurse 20. That's www.magicmind. Co forward slash nurse and then use the promo code nurse 20. And of course, we'll put that link on our website. If you want to, you can go to goodnursebadnurse.com. An experience I had with a nursing student. So you know, I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where are at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com. And use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. Well, I guess we can get into this good doctor story. I'm, I'm excited to have a good story for us to do. Kind of bring some light back into this episode. <laughs> we need a good
1: doctor story now. Yeah.
0: And, and I like shining a light on some good. The same type of professional that I did the bad story on, when I can. So this is um, a neat story. It's about a, actually, a hepatitis C patient, 68-year-old Serena Irons. She had hepatitis and had been cured from it, which was really neat. This is a pretty relatively recent new thing that hepatitis C has a cure. It doesn't work for everyone, but it works for a lot of people. And she was one of the people that was able to be cured from hepatitis C. And she was so happy. She said she felt like God healed her from hepatitis C and that she wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. But the disease left her with another life-threatening problem. So her primary care doctor, Doctor Manuel Quinones, told her that she wouldn't survive without a liver transplant. Too much
1: damage done already.
0: Yeah, exactly. So he said he was able to convince her that her only hope was to continue. Or sorry, her. He was able to convince her that her only hope to continue in this life was to consider transplant. So because there were still several names above her on the transplant list, she was going to have to have a living donor. There was, it was just not, she was not going to live long enough to be able to get up high enough on the list to be able to receive a liver, you know, from.
1: So I guess there's two lists Mm -hmm. uh, and the living donor list is someone who comes forward specifically for you. Is that what that means? Well, the Or is it just a shorter list?
0: The living donor list is, there is a institute called the University Health Liver Transplant Institute. And so you can actually get on a waiting list through this organization. And people can sign up to donate their liver, the portion of their liver, like through this institute. You don't necessarily have to know the person. It's not, you know, I mean, obviously it would help if you... It's a family member. And they just said, hey, I'll give you part of my liver. You But know?
1: why is it that she's able to be on this list and she was not able to be on the other one because she was so far down? I guess there's just not that many.
0: I think that for deceased donors, I think that they, it's a lot less likely because, you. well, I guess you don't. You're kind of relying on, you know, that to happen. I don't know, you know, um, you just, but I'm assuming that it kind of, it's kind of hard to understand. I mean, I yeah. don't really understand the process, yeah. but it seems like you kind of are, you could be relying on somebody you know.
1: Yeah, a living donor probably is more often than not someone well, that and, comes forward for
0: you. Well, here's the thing, because in this particular case, what you were kind of saying was, are you sort of waiting for somebody that you know yeah. to go through that channel? Yeah, and that is what happened here. But this person was wanted to be re- remain anonymous, so she did have somebody that went and said, "I want to donate." a portion of my liver to this particular person mm-hmm. that I'm sure bumped her way up. Cause if you were saying, I want to donate, you know, then that's, you're going to go to that person. And so she said, you know, she didn't expect this. She knew it was major surgery. She just said, why would anybody do this for her? But she don't, you know, joined the waiting list. And then shortly after a coordinator called her and said, an anonymous person wanted to help her by being her living donor. So the day before her transplant, she found out, that the person who was donating a portion of his liver was actually her pulmonologist, Dr. Mark Chalabi. And she said she went to him and all she said was, are you the one? And he said, yes. And Dr. Chalabi said, I was worried that she was not going to accept it for me being her doctor and being a father. So I guess he was saying, there's no way she's going to let me do this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She'll refuse it if I just say, I want to do this for you. So he kind of went the sneaky way and said, you know, okay, I know she's on this list. I'll go say, I want to anonymously
1: Mm -hmm. donate. Incredible.
0: So he didn't want her to know, but she was able to figure it out and... You know, of course he's used to saving lives all the time as a doctor, but I mean, being a living donor, that's a totally different thing than, you know, going to the hospital or going to your office and doing your job. I mean, physicians, you know, healthcare professionals, they, what they, I feel like, you know, what they do is highly admirable and the, they do save people's lives, and it, it, you are not required to go so far above and beyond to, as to give a portion of yourself right. to your I patient.
1: You, you could very well be giving some portion of your life mm-hmm. away.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he was willing to make that sacrifice so he said, just her life, totally dedicated to her children and the church community. Everything she does, I couldn't think of a better person to donate anything to, is what he said. She said, I call him my Superman, my superhero, you know, and now we're connected for life. We're a family. I think that's amazing. Great story. Yeah, I, that that was a nice story to kind of end on, because <laughs> after the dark, horrible um, first story of what the worst of humanity can be, unfortunately. Well, thank you for coming on the the podcast. You're very welcome. Usually, I'm, I give my guest hosts an opportunity to let everybody know where they can find them, but you can find Mark the same place you can find me. <laughs> GoodNurseBadNurse.com. He's the one that creates the website. If you want to see his work, you can go there and see. Wait.
1: <laughs> now I'm going to get a lot of complaints. No. <laughs>
0: You can email me if you want at tina at I appreciate you guys. I've been getting lots of emails lately with good stories. I promise I'm putting them in a list and we'll be getting to all of those stories. So keep them coming. And don't forget to go to nursecreatorcon.com and get your tickets, either vers- virtual or in person for the Creator Con for September 24th. And I also want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.